employers sense in me a denial of their values. Ignatius J. Riley. Hello, I'm Kennedy Weibel. And I'm Rebecca Weibel Capone. And this is Reading Pop Classics, uh, the podcast where we read and discuss popular books from the modern era. Uh, we're starting with classics, what we're calling classics, right? Modern classics. We're picking these books. So today we're talking about A Confederacy of Dunces. The book follows Ignatius J. Riley and an assortment of his family members, acquaintances, enemies, frenemies, fellow citizens of New Orleans over a period of what feels like two to three months, maybe. His mother crashes their car drunk in the beginning of the novel. She can't afford to pay the damages, so she threatens to sell their house, which Ignatius, who is 30, happily unemployed and lives at home, wants to keep living in. And the threat of losing the house pushes Ignatius to concede to going out and getting a job. And what plot there is in this novel comes from this setup and then the follow through. It was first published in 1980, written much earlier. We'll discuss that later. It runs between 390, 450 pages, depending on the edition you're reading. Uh, the most common edition I see usually is the Grove Press edition. It's the one with the yellow and gold block at the top with the title. So if you haven't read this book, uh, you're likely familiar with it. You've probably seen it at least uh, on a Barnes and Noble table, one of the front of store table selections. It's been up there for like 30 years now. If you walk into Barnes and Noble today, the day you're listening to this, you'll probably find it on a table near the front with a little sign on it that says staff favorites or American humor classics, something like that. Whatever the sign says, Catch-22 is probably also on the table, a Vonnegut book a Flannery O'Connor collection, maybe Mark Twain. And that's that's where we are. Confederacy of Dunces, Pulitzer Prize winner, considered a comedy. Uh, Rebecca, have you read it before? This is the first time I've read it, but this book was recommended to me um, several times over the years, uh, starting probably in high school from um, people whose like opinions I, I, I trusted, right? Like other people that read, other people that I felt like read well, read interesting, you know, things. Um, and I do want to say that I picked it up maybe in my 20s. I remember owning this book at some point. And I don't know if I don't, can't remember now if I like started it and I just like wasn't into it. Like maybe it just like wasn't like sometimes you pick up a book and it's just not the time to read it right in your life. Like you pick it up and you're not interested. Um, and I did not get through it. The copy, the copy that you thought you used to own is the copy in front of me here and your page was still folded down. Uh, I can see the impression on it still about page 71 or 72. I did. Oh, yes. All right. Because I gave you the copy. So I got to page 71 or 72. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I do not remember why I put the book down. I don't remember. I did not remember uh, anything pertinent from it. And when I started this book, when I had to, when I repurchased it, by the way, uh, to, for this podcast to read it, um, it felt like a very fresh book to me. But so this is, this is the first time I have actually read the book. Um, and I did enjoy it for what it's worth. I think it's kind of worth mentioning whether or not we, you know, we liked something because just because we've selected it for this podcast does not necessarily mean that maybe we have loved the book, right? And this has always been described to me um, as a comedy and a very funny book, uh, which I did find it, which I did find it to be. And is this, this was not the first time you've read this book. Is that correct? This is my second or third read. I, like you, it came up a lot like people recommended it to me. I came across your copy at some point. I ended up with it. I don't know if you had gone to college and I was home pilfering bookshelves or what. I read it, I think, I don't, I, 
I think I read it after college for the first time. I put it off. Something about too many people recommending it made me sort of like nervous about actually reading it. And the first time I read it, I didn't like it. This is, I think, because so many people told me it was funny. And I don't know what I was expecting from that. Not only did people tell me it was funny, people told me it was hilarious. So funny. Oh my God, the funniest book I've ever read. And I'm not sure what I expected out of that, but I, the first time I read it, I, I disliked it, I think, because of that expectation. I read it again and liked it, and then I read it again for, for this episode. So this is the third, I guess, my third read-through um, for Confederacy. Before, before we kind of talk through the points of the novel, like some of the things we thought about it, does this pass, does this pass the Bechtel test? Yeah, so this is a this is a little segment we'll be doing uh, with each of our podcasts, each of our episodes. Does this book pass the Bechdel test? Because a lot of these books are modern. We're going to be reading um, and discussing books by both you know male and female authors. Um, this book does not pass the Bechdel test. Um, so if you're not familiar with the Bechdel test, the Bechdel test asks the question um, uh, with uh, for women um, or the, what women are in the book um, and do women have comp- do women in a certain book or, or certain media have conversations that um, do not center around a man. I was gonna I was gonna say when she goes to get the pastries and she talks to when Ignatius's mother, Irene, goes to get pastries and she talks to the woman who sells the beignets or whatever it is they get. But they she does ask they talk about Ignatius, don't they? And she talks about Ignatius in every single scene with every character. Because there are many conversations between um her and uh Santa Pataglia. Um, to another female character in the book and every conversation she, you know, Irene is mentioning Ignatius and it, and it irritates Santa. What about, first of all, it's ridiculous. You have to dig this deep. I, I recognize, but what, um, the woman who owns the club and Darlene, the dancer. Oh, dig. Okay. So Lana Lee is the woman who Lana owns, Lee and Darlene the, club, talk about, the night of joy. Yeah. They talk about Darlene's dance. They talk about why Darlene well, Lana talks a lot about why Darlene, by talk, Lana yells at Darlene a lot about how stupid she is, but she does they do talk about people. the dance. They do talk about the bird. Is the bird a boy? Does that count? The bird does not count. No. The bird, <laughs> the bird does not the count, even if the bird count. is a boy. I think it, I've, I mean, I think it passes. I think Lana Lee and Darlene have conversations that are purely about Darlene's career. Darlene's career right. as a dancer in a strip club, but still. But that, but sex work is legitimate work, right? And that is something that is widely being recognized in modern day time. That this is this has been a job for women for years, right? This is this is is work. Um, there is a consumer market for it. It is a legitimate way to make money, and we can we can respect that. Yeah. And I do think that they do. You're right. Discuss Lana Lee's job, Lana Lee's dance, where she wants to go, right? Like what she wants to be doing. Um, essentially, she's just at the bar to encourage people to buy drinks, right? And this her moving up in the world. Yeah, no, she's career driven. Yeah, Darlene's career minded. She wants to move up. This is her moving up in her career is to she wants to be um, you know, a go-go dancer or a stripper or whatever it is and she wants that to start at the night of joy. So I think you're right. This book does pass the Bechdel test. I I have to say the Darlene's inability to remember the single line she has at the at the beginning of her dance that she's supposed to do 
like, the one line that she continues to mess up. Um, <laughs> I, that was I did really enjoy that. I do appreciate that she never gets it right. And she just absolutely can't. And, and then uses the, the excuse that like, I want to be a dancer and not an actor. <laughs> Which I found yeah. to be really funny. Yeah. Like, I'm supposed to be a dancer, not an actor. Like, it's one line. I came out here to do my dance. I did not come here to learn lines and to, and to be an actress. And I did, I did enjoy that. All right. So a confederacy of dunces, there it is. It does pass the Bechdel test. Um, so we, we dug a little deep for it. However, it does pass the Bechdel test. Let me, that brings us to the, so the first of my like kind of points I wanted to bring up is, did you, it sounds like you do think this book is funny. You thought this was funny. I did think this was a funny book. Now I do. Now I'm with you that I did hear it described so often as like laugh out loud, funny, you, you know, to use a modern expression, we're rolling on the floor laughing. This book is, is good. This book is good humored. It has several funny elements in it. I've in this, maybe this is me. I, it's not very often that I find myself really laughing out loud when I'm reading. I mean, a, a smile, a snort or something, but like a big rollicking laugh is not something that happens to me a ton when I'm reading. And I don't, I'm not sure what that's about. I don't, I couldn't tell you why that is. No, same. But I did think this was a funny book. There was a lot of, a lot of smiling. I mean, there, there were things I was like highlighting things. I was just sort of like, you know, flabbergasted about, um, you know, Lana Lee, I particularly enjoyed Jones character as somebody, I mean, everything in it, I think is, is sort of so satirical and, um, you know, and presented in such a ridiculous manner that it does feel like this, like almost like a lighthearted book. Yeah. It's, it's a long book, but it's like you, I, I don't laugh out loud at books. I, I don't always laugh out loud at movies a lot either. I don't know why I just, it's rare. I'm not like a burst out laughing person. Yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's true for me. I was trying to think about that with TV shows and movies. I mean, certainly I watch a lot of comedies and it's not that it, that's, that it never happens, but yeah, I'm not a huge laugh out loud person, I suppose. And maybe in general, but I did find this to be, but I did smile a lot in this book. It has a lot of funny parts in it and the people are funny. I think when the, I first was, it was recommended and I first read it and was underwhelmed. I think it was because I don't know if I was expecting a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, which, which I do, which is jokes. Like there are jokes in that book. It is set up like, you know, uh, Douglas Adams who wrote it, wrote part of my, like wrote with the Monty Python guys, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He worked with them. He's British comedy legend. And I, I guess I was expecting maybe something like that. And this isn't funny like that. Like the character, there's some funny lines in it, but the characters, I guess, are funny. The situations are funny more so than. More so than it's flat out jokes. Yeah. And I think that's where I was going, that it does. It has this, it does have this humorous feel to it throughout the book. The characters are ridiculous. The situations are, are ridiculous, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not laugh. It's not straight up jokes. And I mean, there were things that, there are things that are so ridiculous that they that they become that they're funny and that and though and that is not always something that you're really laughing about yeah. so much as like a, a, an inward smirk if you will i think i also struggled the first time with the fact that ignatius riley is so horrible that it took me a little while to realize i don't think it was until my second read through that i appreciated that he's not a main character we're supposed to enjoy like he's a, he's a wretched person he is a wretched person. There's there. I don't, there is nothing redeemable about him. 
at any point. He doesn't like show an occasional kindness toward like, I guess he likes cats, but I'm not even letting, I'm not letting him get away with that. Like he's awful through and through. He's awful to everyone. He never yields. He is unyieldingly terrible as a person. So one of the points I wanted to bring up, um, which this is, has fed into nicely is, and, you, and you've a little bit answered what your opinion is on this, is Ignatius J. Riley an antihero? That's where that's what I think the question is, because so and for what it's worth, that thought came to me maybe like halfway through the book. Right. So like before I, I had finished it, it was like, it, you know, is he an antihero? And then as I'm reading it, like I'm with you on like, is he a, is he redeemed? He's really not. No, he gets he gets away with it. He gets away with it. Yeah. He writes this, ter- you know, he's working for Levy Pants. Um, I loved I loved his system of his filing system was to just start throwing files away. Okay. So that is, I, I read this book and after I read it, I had a, I had a temp job briefly, like uh filing, like just filing stuff. And it went on and on and on, just like paper into folders and no one ever came to get the folders. No one ever looked at the folders. And I thought about this a lot, his, his system of filing, which was to just take all the filing and throw it in the trash. A hundred percent. I also, I also had a job in, in my younger days and at working in, um, in offices and and having that type of work where I would I would be filing things that were just that no that nobody ever came for nobody ever looked at nobody ever went back to and it did feel very much like what are we saving this for owning a business I off I also did some filing and saved p- papers um, that there was a day that was just like what am I doing why am I doing this and you know what I did I threw a bunch of stuff away and it legitimately never mattered. It never mattered. It never came back to bite me. It was never like, oh, what did I do with all of those papers? I remember one of the, my employees asked me what the where the papers had gone. And I told her I threw them away. And she was like, oh, but what happens if we need them? And it was just like, but we've never needed them in all of these years. No. I guess we'll find out. And it never mattered. So there was a moment of being like, is he gonna is he gonna be redeemed at some point? Is it going to turn out that like eventually he does something great for Levy Pants? Um, which is not the case. However, we could argue he sets a chain of events in motion, though. So for um, so so for the man who owns Levy Pants, right? So for like Mr. Levy, sort of because of you know, sort of because of Ignatius coming in and and shaking things up, as it were. I mean, he does end up coming back to this point of like wanting to get past his negative feelings about Levy pants. Right. So Mr. Levy has, you know, he, his father never let him participate in the business or like never let him move the business forward. Didn't take his ideas. So when his dad passed and the business is passed down to him, he's just like, screw this business. And he's just letting it, he's letting it falter. He's letting it fail. Um, and really not having anything to do with it. He's living off the money from it and, um, you know, and, and not trying to, to, to further the business, which obviously really upsets his wife who was a character I really enjoyed. We can come back to her. But then in the end, I really enjoyed her because I just found her, because much like Ignatius, I found her to be such a ridiculous character that I enjoyed her. So I can't say that I liked her, but like I enjoyed the scenes with her because she was so ridiculous. But to finish about Levy, um, you know, Ignatius writes this horrible letter to one of their like main suppliers. They have like three people that are selling these crap pants, right? And like, he writes this horrible letter. The guy's going to sue him. He's going to lose the business. He's going to lose all of his money. His wife hates him more than ever. Um, and he sort of sees, like, he understands that Ignatius is lying to him. He completely gets it. 
I can blame this on Miss Trixie. I can have Miss Miss Trixie is obviously, you know, uh, out of it, right? We can have her declared insane or um, demented or whatever it is, and have um, and kind of blame this on her. And it's it's a it's a faultless blame, right? I mean, she's blamed, and nothing bad's going to happen to her. It's going to make the lawsuit go away, and he decides to start making Bermuda shorts. Miss Trixie desperately wants to be fired and not have to work there anymore. And every time someone tries to fire or retire her, Mr. Levy's wife is like, no, you're trying to get rid of that poor old woman. And all that's all she has uh, completely against any of Miss Trixie's actual wishes, who desperately wants to stop going to Levy pants. All she wants is for her, like, to get her Christmas ham or the, the, the turkey or whatever it was she was promised. They, con- no, they continue to not get her. Yeah, she was promised the ham, right? Right. So it's like she's asking for this one, like, very simple thing. This woman's like, just give me the ham that I was promised. And Mrs. Levy is like, no, I'm going to continue to have you working forever um, because you're fulfilling your destiny and it's giving you something to do. Um, while she, of course, you know, while Mrs. Levy obviously does nothing except for, you know, her hair and makeup and using her exercise board, which to me sounds like something she just lays on and it moves her around and, and clearly does not actually exercise her. I don't know what an exercise board is. Like the muffler, I had to look up, I had to look up muffler, like that Ignatius wears a muffler. Yes, to me, a muffler is one of those little things that you stick your hands in. That is a muff. Oh, that is a muff. You couldn't name an article of clothing that today. But a muffler is a scarf, I guess. I don't know if there's a difference in the kind of scarf it is or if it's sort of like how some people call them beanies. Some people call them toboggans. I think the Canadians call them toques. The winter hat. Because this book was written in the 60s, we should point out. It was published in 1980, but it was written in the 60s. And the book's play, and so the book takes place in like the late 60s, essentially. Um, but yeah, so I will point out that, you know, Lee, that Mr. Levy does have, he does have this epiphany, right? You know, he turns around, he wants to be more invested. Everything works out for him. But what does he want? He wants to, doesn't, he's like, I'm going to change this business. We're going to pivot. And he pivots to shorts. He pivots to shorts. He wants to make Bermuda shorts with that are more that are more stylish right like he wants to like update them he wants them to reflect like whatever modern clothing you know people are wearing in the 60s he wants like better fabric he wants them to be better he wants to make the company better he wants to make it into something that he feels more passionate about so yes like i I don't know that we can call ignatius j riley an anti-hero like he's not likable and i didn't like him more at the end of no i don't think he's an anti-hero i don't think he and i don't think he's I think he's meant to be an unlikable character, but he does change things for the better for Mr. Levy in the end, or he is a catalyst, right, for this change. Levy and his wife are, I don't dislike them, and I don't dislike the parts with them, but they are the weakest part of the book for me. I think just because they're not in New Orleans, like they're out in their house in the country, I guess it kind of sounds like outside of New Orleans. And everyone else, kind of everything else takes place in this sort of like fresher cooker that Ignatius is outrageous behavior is exacerbating like inside the the walls of of new orleans itself right this is to use the very cliched expression new orleans is a little bit of a care of like a character in the book there's a lot made of the of the dialects that he writes in and how accurate they are but no i also thought it was funny as we're talking about it i'm realizing did you ever watch the kids in the hall the sketch show yeah but it's been a real long time one of the things i always appreciated about that show is when you tell somebody about one of the sketches that you think is funny, describing it is also funny. And I'm realizing as we talk about it, like describing this book is like also funny. Yes. Like he, like this guy inherited a pants factory that he's let fall to ruin. 
he doesn't care much about it. And he's finally like, I'm gonna pivot. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it all around. I'm gonna I'm gonna change the direction of this place. Shorts. Like I think that's funny that his his big change is like just little pants. Like pants that are just littler. Less pants. Yeah. It's interesting because there's also entire plot lines that take place almost without him. The Night of Joy takes place, you know, Lana Lee and... Um... Yeah. Part of the opening, the second scene of the book takes place in the Night Joy. And him and his mother, his mother gets drunk there while Ignatius drinks Dr. Nuts until they throw them out. And then they wreck the car. But then the whole Night Joy thing kind of takes place parallel to whatever Ignatius has going on, which is that he is, and I guess we should mention the plot at this point, like 20 minutes into it, but he is going, he's going from, well, I guess not job to job. He goes to what, two jobs? I guess he only has two. Yeah, there's two jobs. It, he goes to two jobs. I want to describe it as though he goes on a series. It's only two though. He has a job at Levy Pants where he's supposed to be filing. His very first day, he just starts gathering the files and dumping them in the trash. This is where, so I think it's a, a weird part of the novel. I think it's a part that structurally, like, kind of, but I think it's weird that Myrna Minkoff, who is the, in a regular book, she would maybe be the, or in a different kind of book, she would maybe be the love interest. She's sort of the, she's his frenemy, his antagonistic paramour. I don't know how you would describe it. We don't ever actually see them. We only see them interact in like the last 15 pages of the book. So they're very similar. They write letters and other people talk about them. Right. We only read their letters. They went to college together. Ignatius went to college. He majored in, what did he major in? Philosophy? Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Oh, he was a medieval studies uh, major. That's what it was. And he firmly believes that like progress is the, is the ruination of mankind, that the like old gross medieval system was like the last time a man could truly be free and didn't have to work and toil because Ignatius hates work. And he went to college with Myrna Minkoff. And it's interesting because, you know, so, something that I think is a little bit of a um, a point or a theme in the novel is a little bit of this, is education enough when you don't have, when you don't have any experience, right? Is education enough? Um, because he because he's constantly talking about how he's educated. His mother is constantly talking about how he's educated. She's furious that he gets this job at Levy Pants where he's quote unquote just filing, right? With all your education. Um, we'll get more into it, but his second job is as a hot dog vendor, right? He's even more mortified about that, right? Like they're always on him because he doesn't have a job. And then with this job, she's like ashamed of it, right? So she she's not even, you know, taking this thing of like, but at least he's working. She's mortified. And in the end, um, towards the end of the book, she says, you know, Ignatius, you didn't, you, you have all this schooling, you have all this education, but you didn't learn how to be human. You know, so he doesn't, he clearly does not have, he doesn't have people skills. He doesn't, he doesn't really know how to, to work. He doesn't know how to have a job. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, I think that's, I think that's always a pertinent theme. I think that's always a discussion, no matter what sort of um, you know, period we're in, right? I mean, that's something that we talk about now of like, we're asking kids to pay all of this money um, or to go into debt to like start your adult life with a hundred, I'm being a hundred thousand dollars, at least, at least a hundred thousand dollars, right? And we know people that have spent much more on that. You start behind, you start with this hundred thousand dollar debt. And then it's like, and then you come out of college and the first job you get, and you and I are college educated, right? Our first jobs also both included filing, which I think at this point we have learned is is often superfluous. But yeah, so I found that to be like a, the theme in the book because his education is 
is brought up so often in Myrna's education. And I don't believe Myrna finishes school. No, she drops out and goes to New York. Um, we should also point out that just real quick, um, we mentioned that like Ignatius is kind of a vile person. Just a quick cataloging. Um, he, besides refusing to work and letting his mother's the social security or whatever it is that his mother gets from his father's death support both of them. He also he's verbally abusive to almost everyone he talks to. Um, I don't, he masturbates to fantasies about his dog. He goes to movies and screams rape her to actresses about actresses he doesn't like on the screen. He not only throws away all the filing at Levy Pants, but he then tries to start um, a, an uprising. An insurrection, an insurrection, if you will, among the factory workers and have them come in and, and like brain Gonzalez, basically, right? Like he's encouraging one of the factory members to hit this guy with a brick. The very nice man who hired him and has been very patient with him encourages them to hit him with a brick. And not only does he encourage them to hit him with a brick, he gets them to do this uprising under the false belief that he is like from management and that this is to an extent encouraged and approved. And he also puts all like it puts their jobs in jeopardy only so that he can write a letter to Myrna Minkoff saying that he did it to make her think that he is doing social justice and social actions within the world because he is jealous of her letters where she says she's doing things like that. Like he doesn't actually care about the conditions of the workers. He has them go through this for a petty little grievance he has with Myrna, this lady he was terrible with in college. Absolutely. Well, she's so there. So something that I that I enjoyed is there like there's this expression in Thailand, same, same, but different. Right. And I love that. I, I apply same, same to different to so many things. And it, Myrna and Ignatius are same, same, but different. Right. So, you know, I mean, from one, you know, from one thing, she comes from money and he doesn't. Right. Like it's implied she has this like rich father who's, you know, who's doing things. And they both have this like very self-righteous attitude. They both have this attitude that like th that they know better than everybody. Um they come kind of blustering, you know, blustering into things. They make, um, they make noise, they make trouble, but they're not doing, but they're not doing anything. Like they're not successful. Again, they're, they're using their education. I'll give an example that backs. We're up. educated and that makes us better than people, but, the, but they're not right. They're not doing anything. So please use your example. Yeah. That backs up what you're saying. Um, I just, I pulled this. Uh, so this is in a letter that, that Ignatius is reading from Myrna about, uh, a, a theater group that she's joined in New York. The, I'm sorry, it's not a theater group. They're making a movie. That's what they claim. They're they're trying to make a movie. Oh, that's right. She's making a movie. That's the, the first thing that she writes to him about is the yeah. movie. All right. So they're planning. I'm gonna, they're planning a film about interracial marriage. Uh, although it will be a low budget number, the script itself is chock full of disturbing truths and has the most fascinating tonalities and ironies. It was written by Schmuel, a boy I've known since Taft High days. Shmuel will also play the husband in the movie. We have found a girl from the streets of Harlem to play the wife. She is such a real, vital person that I have made her my very closest friend. I discuss her racial problems with her constantly, drawing her out even when she doesn't feel like discussing them. And I can tell how fervently she appreciates these dialogues with me. So that's the end of the quote. That's Myrna. I just, I kept going back to the, I discuss her racial problems with her constantly, drawing her out even when she doesn't feel like discussing them. And then the complete, dis, like, like, like under the delusion that this person like must appreciate this, talking with this wealthy white lady, 
about her racial problems in 1960s America. But it's 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 this letter that I think is what is what kicks off Ignatius's insurrection with the factory workers who are also black. Yes. So something that I, you know, that I see in them again is, you know, so we've talked about their similarities a little bit and then the differences I that I that I see a little bit. Myrna is consistently trying to do things. She's not going about it the right way. She's going about it very Ignatius style. She's she's going about it the wrong way. She she like Ignatius thinks like I have this education, I'm very smart and that makes up for all of these things that I lack. Right? Or it blinds her to it blinds her to the realities of of what's going on around her. Um but she is trying to do good. She's doing it poorly, but she is trying to do good. Ignatius is not. It's just like flat out not. Yeah, no, he's a bad person. He's a bad person. And they're going to also read a quote um, that brings me that that follows up on this, right? So as he is talking to the factory workers who we will, you know, make everyone aware that, of course, they are that in this book, they are um, they're all black. Right. So Myrna's, you know, sharing her experience with this um, this actress that they have found to be in their movie. It inspires Ignatius to, you know, to do this, this, this uh, insurrection or, or whatever, you know, you want to call it with the factory workers and he's writing about it, right? So he's not saying this to them, but he's writing uh, about it and says, in a sense, I have always felt something of a kinship with the colored race because its position is its position is the same as mine. We both exist outside the inner realm of American society. Of course, my exile is voluntary. However, it is apparent that many of the Negroes wish to become active members of the American middle class. I cannot imagine why. I must admit that this desire on their part leads me to question their value judgments. However, if they wish to join the bourgeois, it is really none of my business. They may seal their own doom. So what I have written next to this, mine is egregious white privilege, exclamation point. And this is one of those things that I think is, is it's clearly, it's obviously meant to be so shocking that it's funny, right? Like the person who's writing this book does, does, not, think, does not think this way. This is an absolutely... He is meant to be so wrong at every turn, you know, but it is kind of that, but it, of course my exile is voluntary, right? You like, just, like, just amazing to me that this has come out, you know, that this has come out of this character. And so I just wanted to, and I, you know, so I, I had that underline. I really wanted to discuss it on this podcast. And then, you know, you, you reading about Myrna really, really kind of dove, you know, dovetailed into this, right? You know, cause he's over there, like, you know, cause they're asking to be paid more. And it's kind of like, like, why, why are you aspiring to this middle class? Um, Because again, something that we know is like, you know, Ignatius, again, does he does not come, he doesn't come for money, right? I mean, he's, he doesn't, his his section, the neighborhood is is often described as a a neighborhood that's poor, the house isn't, the house isn't worth a lot, it's, it's run down, you know, etc. But he has this, but he has education. He has education, but he also, he doesn't come from money, but he doesn't think about money. He doesn't think about it because someone, his mother gives it to him. He's privileged enough that he has not had to work for 30 years. Yeah, he's privileged enough that somebody paid for him to go to college for years, for years and years, for a degree he does not use. No, he has this education to get himself, you know, a, a higher paying job, as it were, that he's never used because he just feels so above it. And then it's like you have, you know, the people in this factory, because we, you know, we we learn from Jones right at the night of joy that he's he's picked up for vagrancy because he doesn't have a job. We should talk a little about Burma Jones while we're here. Burma Jones is of our main characters, and there is a cast of main characters, right? Like we have Ignatius and his mother Irene. We have um, Patrolman Mancuso, who we have not talked about yet. Patrolman Mancuso, 
And the novel begins with him trying to pick Ignatius up for vagrancy, failing at it. And that's when they end up in the night joy. Um, And it is Officer Mancuso who finds them when Irene crashes the car drunk. And even though Ignatius is not drunk, he's so worked up by the crash that he's just vomiting out of the car all over the street. (laughs) When Officer Mancuso comes up upon them and then Officer Mancuso comes to the house to talk to Irene about the damages, offers to introduce Irene to his aunt, Santa Battaglia. Santa Battaglia uh, then becomes a character and introduces Irene to Mr. Uh, Claude Robichaud. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that last name right at all, but I'm not looking it up. But to Claude Robichaud, there is also the patrons, or I'm sorry, the employees of the Night Joy, which are Lana Lee. Well, she's the owner, the owner of the Night of Joy. Darlene is um, a, a, she's one of the girls who goes around pushing drinks on guys. Like, let me get you something. Order me one too. Um, just getting guys to spend more money. And then um, Burma Jones is a young black guy who had been picked up for vagrancy. By Mancuso, I believe. Or maybe that's not stated actually. Maybe we don't know. I think he's just there. I, I no, I think he's just in the jail because because the sergeant is giving Mancuso grief about how he never manages to pick anyone up for vagrancy. And the one guy he does pick up is Claude Robichaud. Yes, who's an old man. His first interaction with with the Rileys, as it were, right, is that he's he sees and is, is taken by Irene um coming in and 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 defending her son and yelling at, at Mancuso. Um, but he steps in and says that the police are all communists. And so he is, um, t- you know, Mancuso brings him down to the station and his. Yeah. Um, and that's where we meet Burma. His boss is absolutely infuriated that he has brought in this nice old man for no reason <laughs> um, and sends him home. And, and Jones sees this, right? Like Jones is picked up for vagrancy um, and watches the interaction of, you know, Mancuso's boss just being like, you just brought in this nice old white man yeah. like send him home and i'm punishing you for this this like idiocy and he has to go work in the bathroom or no he gets to go back to the street after that but after a while he has to go work in the bathrooms at the bus station so burma jones comes to the to the is it called the night of joy night of joy yeah night the night of, of joy you on that one night of joy burma jones comes to the night of joy and applies for a job as the porter, which is sort of like the guy who cleans up, fixes the chairs, keeps the floors neat, wipes down the bar, like a, a sort of on staff custodial uh, custodial worker. Lana Lee, knowing that he got picked up for vagrancy and needs the job, because apparently vagrancy back then, I had to look this up, is just uh, being around without a job, like just hanging around outside without a job, just being being alive and unemployed is what they're picking people up for. That's vagrancy. So she knows that he needs the job or he'll go back to jail for vagrancy. So she like pays him next to nothing. Like she's immediately uh, crummy to him and he immediately dislikes her. Although I gotta say, like you probably shouldn't have told her that he'd been picked up for vagrancy. That's poorly played Burma. Anyhow, Burma is trying to kind of, like he knows that Lana Lee is up to something with this young, like school-aged boy who keeps coming in and exchanging brown paper wrapped packages with her for money. He's bringing for her money. money and she's giving him the brown paper packages and saying yes. this for like for the orphans. Right. Yeah. She keeps, yeah. She keeps telling Burma that it's for orphans. And he's like, nah, it's not for orphans. Where the, where the orphans getting all these money, they're all this money, they're orphans. Right. Um, I will say Burma. So in Burma is another protagonist who 
his like along with the rest of the Night of Joy staff, this whole plot line takes kind of like runs parallel to to Ignatius and his uh, his employment trolls. And we're, I mean, this so much happens in this book. So much what? happens. I was there was parts there was times that I was reading it that was based not like what is going on. I can follow the storyline, but just like I, I will say. I will say the way everything like dovetailed together, um, everything, you know, fits together really neatly, tied up really well. And it was well done because there were times when I was reading the book that was just like, what is happening? Why are we following these storylines? Like, how is this coming? To, how is this coming together? It feels a little bit like there's no plot. Like, we're just kind of following random things, how it feels. And, and it, it ties together in the end, but it is a bunch of random stories. John Kennedy Tool was from New Orleans. He was raised by, you know, I don't know the lady, but she is described as a very hands-on, like, overbearing sort of mother. I read a little bit of a of a um, a biography of John Kennedy Toole, and there's these quotes from his mom when he's like two about just how genius, how special, how utterly gifted he was. And by all accounts, he was pretty smart. He skipped, I think, one or two grades and was consistently a couple years behind his his classmates all the way through college. Um, and he was very smart. He taught at Columbia. He went to Columbia and taught at Columbia. He taught at Hunter College, both in New York. He taught at, uh, I believe, Loyola. Loyola or Tulane when he came back to New Orleans. When he was younger, he was in, his mother like ran like children's theater and put him in plays, put him in all of these things. And he was the star of all of her productions. And then he kind of turned to writing and when he was young, he he entered a novel contest for like teenagers or something and entered a novel called The Neon Bible. And it didn't win. And he was apparently pretty crushed by that. Um, but he he gets drafted during Vietnam. When he gets drafted, he gets sent to Puerto Rico to teach English to to teach English to Spanish speaking Puerto Ricans who are going to actually, I think, get shipped to Vietnam versus him sitting there teaching. But that's where he starts writing A Confederacy of Dunces. So he writes a Confederacy of Dunces and he picks a single publishing house to send it to. And he sends it to Robert Gottlieb at Simon and Schuster, who reads it, who actually reads it. He just cold sends it to one guy at one publishing house. And Robert Gottlieb was um, this is back at a time when agents were famous. I think a corollary today would be how showrunners are people whose names we know. Shonda Rhimes, yeah, right. yeah. like, Shonda yeah, we know who Shonda Rhimes is. She's not in any of the shows, but she's the showrunner. She's a writer and she creates them. And agents, I think, had a celebrity like that back then. Like you knew who put out these books and Robert Gottlieb had published Catch-22. So he sends it to Robert Gottlieb, who tells him, I love this. It's so funny. It's not like anything else, but I'm not going to publish it until you work on it. Sends John Kennedy Tool into a bit of a funk. He doesn't really recover from it. I don't think, I think the way the story gets told now is that the book was rejected and he kills himself because of that. And it seems very much from the biography I've read that that is a romantic way of describing a tragic author's life. But his parents were like slipping into, um, like he needed to take care of them at a much younger age than he was anticipating having to take care of them. I think a lot more, it seems like a lot more went into this suicide than, than, than this, because it is incredible that this book was like, 
if you've ever tried to do anything creative, you know that like no one just reads your the first person doesn't read your thing one time and is just sort of like, yeah, but a little bit of work. Like it takes a thousand you're rejections. Lucky, you're lucky if anybody reads it or even yeah. responds to you. He says it to like one of the most famous publishers in the in the country who actually reads it and then responds to him and is like, this is in a great. positive way. Yeah, I want to publish this eventually, but you've got to do work. And he had a very hard time figuring out what to do about it. And one of Robert Gottlieb's complaints, which I don't disagree with, was that it's not about anything. I know we're talking about themes. Is education enough? I also like reading through it. There is a certain theme, I think, of pushing it. Like the um, people who want other people to do a thing that, that like, their idea of what another person should be on that person. So we read the quotes from um, Myrna, like Myrna um, talking to that poor black lady about her racial problems, as she put it, believing that this woman wants to hear about this, or um, Mrs. Levy of Levy Pants brings Miss Trixie out to their house to like, you know, help her work on her and make her better and use her use her psychology correspondence course on this woman. Yeah. To fix her, to make her better. And Miss Trixie just keeps telling anyone who will listen, I want to retire and quit. And all Mrs. Levy hears is like, you've this poor woman saying this because she's so demoralized, but I can change her. When Ignatius wants the factory workers to feel oppressed and to feel angry and to want to hit Mr. Gonzalez who's never done anything wrong to them and who doesn't determine their pay, wants to, them to hit him with a brick. When Ignatius meets um, the the young gay guy, his name's not Dorian Green, is it? What is it? What's his name? It's Dorian Green. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, it is Dorian Green, which I really enjoyed. Oh, it is Dorian Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the book that, is it Picture of Dorian Gray? Picture of Dorian Gray. Okay, yeah. that's what the joke was, right. So when... Um, when he meets Dorian Green and he just decides like, yes, this, all of these gay guys need to join the military at the same time. And that will call, which by the way, is a, we haven't even talked about that, but he like him pushing, he's pushing an agenda that he thinks they should go along with because he misunderstands who they are fundamentally. He misunderstands who they are fundamentally. And again, there is that um, he's um like he thinks because he has education that he's that he's smarter than everybody yeah. right like he has this thing where he's he's above everybody he knows more than everybody so he is you know it, we would all love world peace right but there's a reason we don't have it and it's not yeah. going to be solved by ignatius j riley and it's you know and it, it's it's up there with his it's up there with his commentary on um on like on the black workers right of like oh like we're the same and they're not we don't even have to get into all the ways that that is that is a horribly racist thing and all of the reasons that that is wrong i think really um stand you know stand stand alone and speak for themselves but that's this but it's the same right you know that to just be like oh no if like all of these gay guys join the military you guys will all be so busy having like having parties and planning balls that like there won't be time for war world away that's what he thinks yeah he thinks if he, like he thinks that not only will that work and that is also the part of the novel where, well, yeah, let me, to finish my original point, Robert, like, I, like I'm pulling this as a theme, right? In my third read through of like pushing an agenda that you believe another person falls into a sort of stereotypical agenda that you think is right for them onto them, despite their very vocal, like, um, protestations. But Robert Gottlieb comes back to John Kennedy tool and says, this book isn't about anything. 
Like it's about nothing. And I don't think he's wrong. I think we're finding themes in it because that's how we read, but it isn't really about anything. Like Ignatius does not learn. He doesn't change. None of the characters really learn or change. Like Burma Jones gets a happy ending. Like he is, he is the one, he is the most sane person in the novel. Yes, I agree with that. Like he is the most regular human being that is the most like an actual, just like perfectly nice person in the whole book. Santa Battaglia is out of her mind. Ignatius's mother is out of her mind. Myrna is out of her mind. The both of the Levies are out of their minds. Miss Trixie's out of her mind. Gonzalez is naive. Officer Mancuso is kind of a fool until a very abrupt character change from him in the last like. But it's not even a book. character change. He just gets lucky. He stops wearing the like disguises and like approaches his job differently maybe he might be the only person who no i think he's wearing a disguise he i think he just i think he no he's just in a suit he's just dressed in suit instead of in like the santa claus beard and like oh so that was something i wanted to bring up earlier is that a very hilarious part of this book to me is the descriptions of patrolman mancuso like just dressed up in all of these ridiculous costumes (laughs) yeah basically just like being and acting like a vagrant weirdo that he is supposed to be picking up right like he is legitimately harassing people just legitimately harassing people dorian green just like punches him in the face because he like solicits him kind of i mean that's not his like intention right but he's like feels like dorian green feels that he's being like solicited and like and, and punches him right and gets mad all of these people are like bothered and harassed by patrolman mancuso Mancuso eventually just comes to the fact that like Ignatius J. Riley is such this is kind of such this horrible person. I get the impression that he's just like, if I follow this idiot around, something's going to come from it. Like I'm going to get what I, I all, all my boss wants is for me to bring in a suspicious character. And if I follow this idiot around, I'm going, I'm, I think that he thinks he's going to bring Ignatius in. I'm going to prove that this guy is the suspicious character. This guy I tried to arrest in the beginning of the book who, as we have discussed, is the worst person in the book. I think that he wants to bring him in and he gets really lucky that like this like explosion of things happen at the night of joy. So let's, do you want to talk about the writing itself a little bit? Let's talk about the writing itself. Because Officer Mancuso reminded me, I think it's the scene, I might be mixing up two scenes and I'll apologize, but there's a scene, I think it's where Ignatius is talking to Dorian Green on the street, which is, I think the scene where you, like where I first sort of realized like Ignatius is an absolute insane person. Like there is nothing okay about him. There isn't anything underlying here. He's a, he's crazy. But um, in the background, like just the way the narrate, the narration is in the background of this conversation, they don't, the, the narration doesn't say it's officer Mancuso, but it's like a guy dressed as a biker, but also in like a pair of loafers for some reason tries to approach, um, two women one of whom turns around and like punches him in the face or starts scre- it's just in the background and like because we've been reading we know that it's off- officer mancuso in one of his disguises trying to like try oh he tries to solicit two prostitutes who were in a scene a couple of scenes earlier that's what it is oh that and, is yes and, and they beat him up and they beat him up and we don't like they don't say that it's him but it's in the, and i just i think that is very funny and very i don't know I think part of the way that this is written very well, I do think it is, I don't think Robert Gottlieb was wrong. I think it is overly long. I don't think it's about anything. 
And I think that it would benefit, I think the book would benefit from being about something at all. The book would benefit from editing. Yes. The best best books that you read did not start out as good as they were. They just don't. I mean, it's just, it's just why, it's just why we have editors to go in and look at something with a, to look at something with a certain eye and work with a writer and help shape their idea and help shape their story into something that is a very good book. Because by the time we get to the grand finale, which is what I'm like, the night that Dorian goes to Dorian Green's party with all of his and Ignatius friends, goes to Dorian Green's party. And the lesbians who I thought were very funny. I, I, I really, know. yes, I really enjoyed, uh, I, I enjoyed that, that character. Yeah, I thought, I thought they, were, they were really fun. Um, but the night that he goes there and then he goes to the night of joy because he thinks that his dream girl is working there in a sort of servitude and once he meets her, because he's seen a picture of Lana Lee holding his copy of Constellations of Philosophy by Bothius. Bo- not saying it right, Bothiasus. I'm reading it as Bothius. Bothius, thank you. So he he gets thrown out of Dorian Green's party. He goes to the Night of Joy. It turns out that it's not his dream girl. It's just Lana Lee who hates him. And then Darlene is trying to do her dance with her cockatoo. The cockatoo is supposed to pull Darlene's clothes off with these little tiny rings, one by one. Ignatius is dressed as a pirate for reasons we haven't gotten into, but he's dressed as a pirate with a gold hoop earring. So the cockatoo attacks Ignatius, falls out of the bar, out into the street. He is almost run over by the streetcar, but Burma Jones saves his life and pulls him out of the way. While this is going on, Officer Mancuso, dressed normally this time, approaches the bar. Lana Lee, trying to turn things around from the scene that Ignatius has called, propositions him, at which point he arrests her. Burma Jones leads him to the suspicious material under the bar, which turns out to be pornographic material she's been photographing and selling to (laughs) schoolboys. And... And the lesbians show up and they try to fight someone again and they also get arrested. I think they've been arrested. I think he I think he arrests them prior to um prior to the scene with Ignatius. I think they're just in the cop car. Ignatius is passed out in the street and is taken to a hospital. And when all of that, all of that happens in so few pages, by the way, and all of that happens, there's still like 70 pages of book left. Yes. And like, I'm exhausted by the time the arrest and Burma's a hero. And like, it's just, it's so long. Like, and I don't know, you and I were raised in an era, maybe this wasn't like you and I were raised in an era where something being, we were raised in the Seinfeld era. Being about nothing is okay. Things don't have to be about something. When you make something about nothing, you make it about everything, kind of. Right. Like, I mean, like, there, there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of themes in this book. We We talked about we've talked about the racial things in this book a couple times that bring up really obvious points about, about racism. This isn't a book about racism, no, but it is a commentary on it. Right. And, and how, and how, th- you know, and how things were, it is a, a commentary. We can, we can look at that. We can pull that out of it. It is a book of, you know, we've talked about edu- like education is education enough. It's not, you know, um, and we, we kind of know that and we absolutely see, you know, we absolutely see that in this book. Um, we've talked about your, you know, the theme you brought up of, you know, like pushing your agenda on other people. Um, 
black characters in this book, the gay characters in this book are caricatures of black people and gay people, the lesbians, right? Or caricature of like these really manly lesbians who just want to like fight and cause trouble. The gay guys in the in the book are these really, um, you know, extravagant over the top. While that's true, I do feel like, I do feel like every character is a caricature. Yes. And when Dorian Green has certain, like, I don't know, a gay flamboyance that would be kind of like a stereotype or a caricature that would put on him, he is still given actual, like, work to do in the book. Mm-hmm. He's not like a passing, like, uh, he's not used as a punchline. No, he's not. He's not. Um, Burma Jones is not used as a punchline. In fact, he is, I, I think we mentioned the only sane person in the book. He's I think. the only sane person in the book. Um, Dorian Green, I guess, is, well... I don't know if he's sane, but um, but uh, I do think that a little bit of the sting of the fact that every single person is a caricature of themselves, like everyone is so heightened, it doesn't feel like it's, um, it, it does very much in the narrative not feel like these people are meant to be jokes or punchlines. These are people who are meant to represent the people, the, the myriad people of New Orleans. And if anything, Ignatius's interactions with them are what is predicated on stereotype, like is his approach to them. And they themselves are not, do not behave stereotypically, I don't think. I wanted to do a couple of quotes that I thought were funny. Pull them out. Ignatius calling things an abomination. Um, I like the line, this is Ignatius saying this, but veneration of Mark Twain is one of the roots of our current intellectual stalemate. I personally like Mark Twain, but I think it's funny that Ignatius... I do have a comment that I wrote down that is, why does he hate Mark Twain so much? It's He mentions it more than once in the book. What is his beef with Mark Twain? I don't know. I just like that he has one. I don't know what the problem is. I like that he has one too, because it was just like, what? Because it's never explained, it's never referenced, and I couldn't, I did not, I mean, I, I'll be honest, my uh, familiarity, I guess, with the works of Mark Twain are very limited to school, and it's been a minute. Um, I guess he thinks he's like cheap entertainment. Oh, um, I, I mean, yeah, maybe it's that. But yeah, I just was like, what <laughs> the beef with Mark Twain? And then, like I said, it was just like, I, I couldn't draw any parallels. Maybe it's just a random thing. Ignatius observes his mother coming down the street, and the narration tells us that her brown wedgies squeaked with discount price defiance. <laughs> I like that line. He describes the Smithsonian Institution as a grab bag of our nation's refuse. Oh, I really enjoyed that one, too. I also highlighted that. I'll do the other. Um, I'll do the other. What he uh, That dreary fraud, Mark Twain, uh, is another, 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 another shot across Mark Twain's bow. I like the line, um, for I mingle with my peers or no one. And since I have no peers, I mingle with no one. Yeah, I also enjoyed that. And that is, you know. I also, this is, uh, he describes white Protestants as a class of humans who as a group specialize in ignorance, cruelty, and torture. <laughs> Just a, a, really, a random attack on the, oh, the fact that he um, he calls his uprising of the factory workers at Levy Pants the crusade for Moorish dignity. From the beginning, Mrs. Riley looked at her son's reddening face and realized that he would very happily collapse at her feet just to prove his point. He had done it before. The last time she had forced him to accompany her to Mass on Sunday, he had collapsed twice on the way to the church, and it collapsed once again during the sermon about sloth, reeling out of the pew and creating an embarrassing disturbance. 
Um, and then when Ignatius tells the story of his tragic trip on the Cine Cruiser, um, I just, I, I thought this was like a very good example of like what's actually, like one of the things that's funny about the book is the, he's talking about driving out of town and like getting into the, the rural areas outside of New Orleans, which is when he started feeling ill and scared. And he says, by the time we left the swamps and reached those rolling hills near Baton Rouge, I was getting afraid that it's, I was getting afraid that some rural rednecks might toss bombs at the bus. They love to attack vehicles, which are a symbol of progress, I guess. That little bit of dialogue, I think, is very funny because it's the it's the second part. They love to attack vehicles, which are a symbol of progress, I guess. Like, he's inventing a rationale for these imaginary rural rednecks who might attack his semi cruiser that he's riding in. And at face value, guessing that the rednecks hate buses because they hate progress and progress equals the bus, like the plain, boring, run-of-the-mill bus. I just, I think that's pretty funny. But another layer of that is if you manage to remember that this book is taking place in the 60s, and there have recently been several famous bus attacks on marchers during the civil rights movement where they were being bused to march for their rights. And then you remember that Ignatius would know about these or have heard about them and that he has misunderstood that act, the bombing of those buses, so completely as to assume that it might happen to the commercial Greyhound that he's on, and that the reason that it would happen, the bombing of the bus, would be the unyielding hatred of progress, again, represented by the unremarkable bus. Look, it's funny, and it tells us something about the idiocy of the character and his, like, the fact that he does not see anything besides himself like every thought he has about others is an internal reflection of his own like he doesn't see anybody else as a person assuming that his imaginary rednecks dislike progress is is just on at face value i think funny and that to me is um something something just like that struck me um something i had highlighted is that he says, um, it's like in one of his in one of his writings, something that I had highlighted. Uh, this comes from the the when he talks about that that, that dreary fraud, Mark Twain. So this failure to make contact with reality is, however, characteristic of almost all of America's quote unquote art. Any connection between American art and American nature is purely coincidental, but this is only because the nation as a whole has no contact with reality. That is one of the reasons why I have always been forced to exist on the fringes of its society, consigned to the limbo reserve for those who do uh, who do know reality when they see it. And that is interesting to me because, as you've just pointed out, this is not a man that has contact with reality. No, this is a man who lives. This is a man whose brain lives deeply in medieval times, right? Like not not even he's not even doing the thing where like he's looking back into like the fifties is the ideal time or whatever it is. Like he's looking back into like the medieval past. Right. Yeah. He thinks um, that things were better off then. This, he thinks that things were better off then we, he, you know, he has, he, ha he has no contact with reality. He's rarely going out. Right. Like he's rarely going out and doing, and doing things. He's rarely leaving the house. He doesn't have a job. He goes to see movies and stuff just so he can hate them. He's a pre-internet troll. Like he's a troll. Yes. Okay. 
So he's an incel. He is a he's a yes. That was a question that I had written down. Is is Ignatius an incel? If this book were written today, Except he's not an incel because he's he is voluntarily celibate. He's a vol cell. He is volunt. That's true. He is voluntarily celibate. Vol cell. A vol cell. But this is a man that would be online just writing absolute. Yes, that's it. He just he absolute screams, vitriol. He sits in his room. And he writes vitriol, which we get to read. He just spews it at everyone. The only person who really gives him any of it back is the guy who owns the hot dog cart. That's true. Is the only person who ever really comes back at him and is, is, is truly angry at him. That was one of Robert Gottlieb's other complaints or suggestions back to John Kennedy Toole was that Ignatius is a wonderful character, but there is far too much of him and he is not as wonderful as you seem to think he is like there's more of him in this book than there needs to be and i agree with that as well so the way this book comes to publication is john kennedy tool tragically leaves new orleans after um his book is not immediately picked up he takes it kind of hard but he doesn't seem to recognize the rousing success of even having someone respond is his parents are both declining. He is realizing that he is going to be like the sole caretaker for them. Very young age. Uh, his book didn't get picked up. He goes on a road trip and on it, he pulls over to the side of the road. He takes a length of hose out of his car and he puts it from the tailpipe into his car, rolls up the windows and asphyxiates himself. Uh, his mother destroys his suicide note and goes around just telling people like, it was fine. He said he loved me. That's kind of how she approached it. No, 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 you don't need to read it. He just said he loved me and, and he really appreciated being my son. That's kind of how she uh, goes about dealing with that. But she finds his manuscript and takes it around, takes it around, and she eventually takes it to Walker Percy, who taught at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. Walker Percy was a, a teacher and an author there. He written a book that was fairly popular called The Movie Goer is the only thing I know by him. And Walker Percy, who writes the intro to pretty much any copy of Confederacy of Dunces that you pick up, tells this story, but he read it hoping he could just read it, dismiss it, and like go on with his life. But it kept being good and kept being good. And he is how it gets published in 1980. And then it goes on to win the Pulitzer in 1980, which there is some, I don't know, I had to pull old articles to find this. And it's not like a proven thing, um, but there is a little bit of a sense that it was given the Pulitzer kind of as a um, kind of as a shot at like Northeast writers who thought they were so smart and who had been winning the Pulitzer over and over again. Mm. And, you know, it was kind of given it was given to this to kind of be like, mm, we don't there's other stuff. Let's see who won. Who won the 1979 Pulitzer? Okay, so leading up to this, in 1975, it's a book called The Killer's a the Killer Angels by Michael Shara. I've not read it. Humboldt's Gift by Saul Bellow. I have read it. That's 1976. Elbow Room by James Allen McPherson. Do you know that? Mm -mm. No, I've never heard of it. Uh, 1979 is The Stories of John Cheever by John Cheever. You've heard of John Cheever, at least. Oh, yeah. And Saul Bellow. Uh, followed in 1980 by The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. Not read it, but we've both heard of it. Well, we've both heard of it, yeah. And then in 1981 is A Confederacy of Dunces. 
followed by Rabbit is Rich by John Updike, which seems a return to form for like. I was going to say, yeah, we're going back to. He's a Chicago guy, I guess, but still, he, he Cheever, Updike, Saul Bellow, Mailer, all fit into like Norma Mailer. yeah, Mailer kind of yeah. Um, the color purple wins in 1983. Ironweed wins in 84. But oh, and then Foreign Affairs, which uh, I'm only reading so that we can get to 1986 with Lonesome Dove, which we should do at some point because we both enjoy that. Oh, Lonesome Dove, so good. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. So um, there's some sense that it was kind of nominated and won the Pulitzer uh, just sort of as publishers and stuff kind of saying like, you know, we don't need you as much as you think. You're not as important as you think you are. Uh, I don't know if there's any truth to that. Um, lots of failed attempts to turn this into a movie. Let's see. Harold Ramis, Egon from Ghostbusters, uh, for those of you who are into other classics, um, wanted to write and direct an adaptation starring John Belushi as Ignatius and Richard Pryor as Burma Jones. Um, Belushi died, prevented that. And then later, uh, John Candy was going to be in it. Um, his death prevented that. Uh, after that, Chris Farley was talked about for the lead, um, but he also died, um, which led many people to say there was a curse the role of Ignatius, curse. Yeah, and cocaine might be the curse. Um, the one that I think is interesting is that uh, John Waters was interested in directing an adaptation that would have starred Divine, who, for those of you listening who are not super familiar with John Waters' Awar, um Divine is the mother, is the man who played the mother in the original Hairspray. That was Divine. Um and after Hairspray became very popular, Divine was kind of poised to actually kind of blow up a little bit, but then Divine also died. Let's see, Stephen Fry, the British guy, was at one point commissioned to adapt it for the screen. Um, John Goodman wanted to play it at another point. Uh, Steven Soderbergh was going to adapt it at another point. And there's a famous staged reading of a script that I think is the Steve Soderbergh version that was going to be directed by David Gordon Green, was going to be released in 2005. And this is the famous lineup that from like our time period would have would have been, it was Will Ferrell as Ignatius, Lily Tomlin as Irene. Let's see, Paul Rudd as Officer Mancuso, Kristen Johnson as Lana Lee, Mos Def would be Burma Jones, Rosie Perez as Darlene, Olympia Dukakis as Santa Battaglia, um, and Miss Trixie. Oh, this is from um, this was a staged reading of the script. This was the this was the, the cast for that. Uh, Natasha Leone was Myrna, Alan Cumming as Dorian Green, which Chef's kiss to that. That's great casting. Uh, John Shea as Gonzalez, Jesse Eisenberg as George. Uh, John Conlon is Claude Robichaud. Jace Alexander is bartender. Ben Celia Weston is Miss Annie. Miss Inez and Miss Levy and Dan Hedaya as Mr. Levy. Um, and that was the that was the sort of famous stage reading of the script. And then Soderbergh uh, couldn't film it because I think Hurricane Katrina. He did eventually get a stage version that uh, Nick Offerman is in that I think went fine and no one died and i think everyone liked it maybe nick offerman broke the curse nick offerman was ignatius yeah nick offerman was ignatius i like that i like natasha leone for uh myrna 
I like Natasha Leone for anything. Basically, I, I really enjoy yeah. her. She's great. I will say my one other critique is the end that Myrna Mink, he's about to go to the insane asylum and Myrna Minkoff comes and picks him up and just takes him away. This would be a better book if he went to the insane asylum. I I felt that too. Yeah, I I think it would be a legitimately better. When, the, when somebody knocks on the door and it's Myrna, I was yeah. a little disappointed. If he went to the insane asylum, gets there, and it ends with him looking around and like starts telling someone the Cine Cruiser story or something like that, it would have been... A more fulfilling ending and a better ending. So would you recommend people read it? I would recommend that people read this book. Yes, absolutely. I do. I did find this to be, I found this to be an enjoyable book. I find it an enjoyable book to read in today's society because we do have, like we were discussing, like, you know, like, is he an incel? Like, no, he's a voluntary celibate. Um, and he doesn't have some hatred for women specifically. He's a misanthrope across the board, basically. Pretty much hates everybody. Hates he everybody. does hate women. He does categorically hate women, but not just women. But not, but not specifically for being women. No, no, he just hates. He just hates everyone. You know, he's he's misanthropic. Um, but I absolutely think that because I was thinking just the same thing as you is like this is a man who would just be sitting like absolutely roasting and writing negative comments on things. But I picture this man to be, you know, in his in his room, just you know, stealing people's souls, purposely trying to make people angry. Um, or just using the internet as this platform for getting, you know, for getting out these insane ideas and thinking that that's a really great way to air them or whatever it is that people who write insane comments on the internet, whatever their, um, their reasoning is for doing that. So I think it's a fun book to read. Like it, it's a fun book to read in any day and age. Yeah, I would also recommend it. I, I think it's fun. I have some criticisms of it. I do think it's too long. I think there's too much Ignatius. I think there's some other like weak points to it. Um, but Overall, I would recommend it. I enjoyed reading it. I'm glad. I, I don't feel like I shouldn't have read it a third time. Um, I would recommend. You should pick it up. And like I mentioned, it's on that front table. It's guaranteed somewhere easily accessible. Absolutely. It's a staff pick. I've seen it as a staff pick in many, many, many bookstores over the years. So what are we reading next? So the next book we are going to be reading is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, okay. Well, we we will see you we will see you see all you next time. time. Thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.